So, hello everyone and welcome back to Beyond Crime Podcast. So today I'm joined by Sally Brown. Sally, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Sally and I was a, um undergrad and postgrad student at BCU um, for criminology and policing and I'm now an analyst um, for the police as a job. Thank you very much, Sally. So I guess where we can start is how did you choose your undergrad degree and what made you sort of have an interest in criminology and policing? Um, to be quite honest with you, um, I've my family have always, you know, watched crime programmes yeah. and it's sort of always in it's it's the, it's, it's it's a very like general thing but a, and a very common thing it does spark people's attention yeah um and granted when I was younger I thought that um things like Luther and stuff were very um sort of realistic yeah. they're not <laughs> <laughs> um not at all um but yeah, so I really got interested in that. And um, I think my interest started with um, Professor David Wilson. I really did uh, um, read a lot of his books. Um, I just sort of really, I was very interested in big media cases in particular. So things like Soham, um, the Soham murders and sort of Levi Belfield and things like that yeah so I did a lot of reading and even when I was at college um in my breaks I would watch tons of documentaries I was obsessed with it um and any chance I could get I mean I did an English um undergrad uh, undergrad sorry an English A level and we got the chance to write about things what did I write about true crime yeah (laughs) just 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 things like that and it really I knew when I got to A levels that that is exactly what I wanted to do was to do a criminology degree and I loved BCU so much um from online and we were always taught go to your favorite one last because otherwise you'll just pick it and disregard all of the others I went to BCU last and I absolutely loved it didn't have a second thought about picking any other university at all um and got in and to be honest when I started at BCU I wasn't particularly interested in policing um I was interested in just crime in general and I hadn't really found that niche within criminology that I was really really interested in yeah um so in my first year, I'm not sure whether it's the same now because I know things have changed around with the degrees, but um, there's the, there was the three strands of criminology yes. and you all do the same first year. Is that still, yeah, still the same? Yeah, still the same, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I um, obviously did the security studies modules and I also did the um, policing ones. Now, I realised how much I actually knew about policing from watching all those TV programmes as a kid. Um, And um, I never felt, I I mean, I, at one point, um, I did want to do something like criminal law. Um, I don't think I'm particularly smart enough to do that. And I can't remember things off the top of my head, quick, quick like that to be in court. Plus, it's not it's not as fun I don't think um we've we we did law modules when I 
did my undergraduate and it was interesting but if I had to do obviously you would have to do like family law and to me the only thing I yeah the only thing I was interested in was crime yeah so and I realized I really liked policing because policing actually looked at how to solve it which was my biggest thing and tactics and I'm I really found my voice at uni so I was quite shy when I started um which a lot of people wouldn't agree now um <laughs> like, I don't know you <laughs> um but um yeah and it was I was very shy and I sort of started to form my own opinions about how I thought policing should be done and you know looking at past cases and I realized that my interest in crime history really sort of drove my wanting and I think the reason I was so interested in it was because I didn't want to make the same mistakes or like in a job I thought we should learn from past mistakes and also learn from past successes yeah so I really I loved that and I realized that policing and that side of criminology really gave that to you when exactly yeah you always um want to be driven by the things and sort of learn from other people's mistakes and I think criminology does give you the chance to do that absolutely and also the the scope of um policing is actually quite vast so it's it's not just um you know you I think the thing is and what I love about criminology as a um subject is the fact that it's not just one dimensional it's history it's sociology there's psychology in there yeah there's the policing and there's security and it all comes together to form an like a, a complete view of something and that's what I liked it gave you you know the holistic view of everything and um I don't know I, I loved it and um after first year I knew that it was the right course for me for definite yeah oh yeah and I'm guessing you then changed on to the policing pathway moving into the second year because you wanted to pick up sort of more of those modules more specifically yeah I did and it to be honest it was an amazing experience and and it was probably one of the best decisions I've made career-wise actually because um the I I realized that when we were doing the policing um work it wasn't as theoretical based as criminology on its own is quite heavy criminology can't it and the thing is as well yes policing has got the theory there but they're showing you case studies after case studies and how you would put it into practice yeah and that that sort of active actually doing something with the information I found really helpful um, and it really slotted in with me plus the opportunities that were given from doing um, that um, pathway were brilliant I mean I did a module that was um, it was criminal law but we had quite a few guests come in we had um which was set up by the department, which was brilliant. Um, we had a victim, I can't remember her name, and I feel really bad for it because I should, um, but um, she was a victim of on a base crime. And, well, basically what had happened was her um, 
her sister-in-law um through marriage had um basically um disobeyed the family and what they wanted and it was a very strict family the way that they were right and she was was um sort of under the um the ruse of we're going to a family um sort of event in india i think it was and um they killed her there and um she was then frightened herself that it would happen to her because um the family sort of turned on her in the way she, with everything and were very violent and very um just very manipulative and she came in to talk about her experiences and she also because she set up a um a charity called true honor and she was talking to us about that and it was so insightful basically they go to communities and they talk to because they tend to she said that they tend to find the younger generations aren't as um engaged or well no that they're 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 not they are engaged and that's the thing they're more engaged with sort of um western ideals because generally um honor based crime is not western or orientated um and it's the older generations that are quite stuck in because as she described it it's quite um an old-fashioned and it is an abusive um form of control it's awful and they go and educate the young and the older to try and show people that it's not it's not acceptable whether it's here or even if you know um a a grandmother who wasn't necessarily born here but is living with her grandchildren that were born here even if they go um let's say they were from like india again if they go back it's not acceptable to behave like that even in another country it's not it's not a nice way of being to people that you're supposed to love and who are family yeah and and it's a really educational tool and she also brought with her um his name is Clive Driscoll he's the loveliest man you'll ever meet <laughs> and he um helped set up true honor because he is the one he is an ex uh dci i think he was um who uh brought the the uh family of this woman to justice um and actually because there was quite a lot of issues of her being able to talk to the police in a safe way yeah um so you know they watched everything that she did and she said that a lot of the time the police can then well back then anyway because this was quite um about maybe 10 years ago they weren't as switched on about on a based violence yeah they didn't um yeah and it was quite an un not an unheard of but it was sort of lumped in with domestic abuse and it is domestic abuse but it's different because it's there's a different sort of um there's cultural issues there with it and there's also a lot of cultural misunderstanding that i think the police and members of the public didn't understand back then and the police she was saying that the police just expected um her to just come in and make a statement and she was saying you know that's not the way it can work um so he was sort of telling us tactics like you're all going to go into 
crime in some way obviously not committing it um but you know police officers or whatever and I'd like you to take this on with with take this on and take it with you when you go into these jobs because it's very important um and he's actually Clive is actually the police officer that brought um two of Stephen Lawrence's killers um, to justice. Oh, wow. Okay. Years later, he's amazing. He also came in um, to talk about that on another stage um, during my degree. Um, we had in... Um, we had in an ex-police officer. There was quite a few years ago, as I recall, there was um, a young girl, I think her name was Kaylee. And she had met somebody on um, Facebook or some sort of social media and gone to their house. She was only about 15, I think. She was very young. And she'd gone to their house and, unfortunately, they they killed her. And it was a big media push after her murder. And there was things all over social media and it was called Kaylee's Story. Yes. It's... Yeah. It's really emotive. I'm sure you would have seen it because it was everywhere at the time. Yeah, I think I heard of it online. Everyone was putting it on like their social media yeah. and things, but yeah. And um the officer that investigated came in and talked to us about that case and how, you know, the law the way the law is and how investigations and police side of it. We also had um a police officer that investigated um Joanna Dennehy, the female serial killer. Yes. Um, and honestly, those experiences and speaking to those officers and, you know, how they got pieces of evidence and the way they went um, about certain things and stages and investigation really sort of reiterated into me. I'm on the right course and I this is definitely what I want to do as a job. There's nothing else that... I want to do I love the academic side um and even now I'd like to still even I'm in full-time work and I still want to keep up with academia I like to write um but it is definitely that practical yeah doing something is brilliant and I loved it yeah and I guess that's what gave you sort of the motivation for doing your dissertation and going on to the masters as well because you wanted to sort of keep engaging into that um practical side of the course but how did you end up choosing your dissertation subject in the end based off everything you'd learned well funnily enough um it was quite almost quite random um I always had an interest in counter-terrorism always always have um and it I mean um I live in Buckinghamshire and um a lot of the I say a lot of a couple of the um the suicide bombers um from seven seven um came from around here round from where I live and I'm, I'm Buckinghamshire as well so it's got are you re- where whereabouts near High Wycombe Aylesbury amazing what a small world <laughs> I know small small world wow. and um Samantha Luthway is from near me as well um, she was actually from Aylesbury. She's the white widow. Um, she is supposed to be the brains behind, um, say brains, the horrible sort of way of thinking, but um, behind the, um, I think it was the Kenyan shopping mall attack. Yeah. And that, all of the sort of, the 
the conversations and knowing about all of that when I was younger um, sort of really interested me as I grew up and the policing side of it as well because there's a little bit of security in there but there's also the policing side of it and the prevention side of it as well Um, and you know I realised that everyone was focusing when they were looking at counter-terrorism and security they were always focusing on um, Islamic and Middle Eastern terrorism yeah so ISIS and Al-Qaeda and I was like I don't necessarily want to do that because I think for me it just felt like it's been done quite a lot and I wanted to do something different especially when there was so much a lot of the basis of security and stuff at the moment especially around you know in the last 10 years and less than that has been Middle East and Islamic terrorism and um I wanted to see what the other side of terrorism is because you know that's not the only one so I um I looked on the um sort of MI5 website and had a look at their um sort of threat levels right and one of the big things was Northern Irish terrorism yeah now I I know people from the region and um it just sort of sparked an interest and I thought oh I'll go and have a look at that and I'd heard about it quite a lot because my parents had grown up with the attacks that went on by the IRA in London in the 70s and the 80s and so on and they'd talked to me about it before and I really wanted to understand and digging into it I realised there was an enormous amount of history there huge which as I said love history quite history of crime so I looked back and I looked back and then I saw you know the dips of where it quietened down a bit and then when it started again you know it it quietened down sort of after the 1920s and then it sort of rose up a little bit during um, World War Two, sort of you know 40s 50s there was still border um, activity so activity of fighting British soldiers and campaigns by the IRA on the Northern Irish border, which is not there anymore. Um, And then, obviously, the trouble started in 69. Now, it was officially said to have ended in, you know, in the the 1990s. And I looked at it and I thought, how can it be if the threat level is still so high? Like, to me, it it can't be i would i don't think you could ever say that you know when we when we're i found it quite far like farcical that the fact that it was you know um the the level of um threat was you know substantial but if we had a level of threat for substantial for other forms of terrorism everyone is saying it's completely there it's yeah. very much there you know when enemy. yeah and also when when the um because there has been times where the threat level has dipped very luckily very low um and but we still don't say that you know um isis is gonna go away if it dipped extremely low next year we're not gonna say isis has gone forever because we know that it's not no they'll come um, back 
and just because you know i think a government signed a um an agreement i don't personally think that that was the biggest factor so i looked into it and i found actually it had not it had not ended the amount of atrocities and the amount of deaths and violence had had gone down but it mutated so it was no longer you know checkpoints with men in balaclavas with rifles checking because there was times during the troubles that if you said you know regard whether you were a um because obviously over there if you're nationalist you're most nationalists or republicans tend to be catholics and um loyalists and unionists tend to be protestants Mm -hmm. not always but the majority of the time that's the connotation and there were times back during the troubles where you would have um, loyalist paramilitaries and republican paramilitaries (laughs) um tongue twister they would say um they would stop people in their cars and ask them to say the alphabet. And if they said their alphabet in a certain way that wasn't fitting, because apparently if you say H or H a different way, I can't remember which way it was, would determine what sort of almost group of um, society you were from, they would, they would shoot you. They would, they would shoot you. And it happened. And also you would be asked to recite, parts of um you know the bible or the old testament yeah to prove what to prove whether you were catholic or protestant and it was brutal now yes luckily and thank god they don't have anything like that now but it's mutated they've gone from doing things like that to selling drugs to working in organized crime they extort money from people um and yes, they're not necessarily actively recruiting, but the groups are very much around. Even when I was doing my master's, so after I had written my um, dissertation, which was how Northern Ireland's um, conflict had not ended um, in the 90s, um, they, I think it was the new IRA had sent letters um, to certain places in London which were meant as a bomb scare wow. and yeah there was attacks in I think there was an attack in Birmingham or something like that into in the 2000s there's been yes they're not as big and they're not happening as often thank god but stuff it, as, still as long as, of course it is if there's still paramilitaries you know rocking about it's happening they tend to turn in on their own communities now as well you've got um punishment shooting so if you're um misbehaving so if you're a lot of it is joyriding or drug dealing or just antisocial behavior the paramilitaries will shoot you um not to kill most of the time they will uh kneecap you or shoot you in the ankles um and that happens very often um guns are so more much more prevalent over there because of the hangover from the conflict and you know even now police officers and people that are in the army can't tell people what they do over there they have to check under their car for bombs before they get in it 
Um, there's been times where police officers unfortunately haven't done that in recent years and their cars exploded outside of their house. Now, to me, if you can't tell your neighbour what you do for a job without thinking that somebody's going to attach a bomb to your car, the conflict's not over. No, you just don't hear about it, though, do you? It's all been censored. No. It's quite scary. And and my biggest um, argument in that research was it's mutated and it's classed as over because it's not affecting mainland Britain. We're not... When we're not going into London or you're not going to you're not going to uni in Birmingham or Manchester, big cities and thinking, oh, my God, somebody's going to set off something in a pub or, you know, like the Birmingham pub bombings. You, you don't there isn't that as high a worry that that's going to happen now, whereas in Northern Ireland, that could happen. It was only, I think, a year and a half ago the um the central court so the big criminal court in i think it was in belfast or londonderry had um they they exploded a bomb outside of it and it and you can see the footage online it's a complete and utter fireball mm. and luckily no one was hurt but it's it's not the point if that's happening on a regular basis it's not over and i think the fact that it's not happening here is why it's, you know, I think to a certain extent, um, central government are not as bothered because it's not affecting, you know, the main financial districts because during the IRA's reign of terror, um, they attacked City of London all the time. They caused millions of pounds of damages, killed and injured dozens of people. And that and that was a constant worry that that was going to happen. Whereas, because we don't have that as much anymore, you it's kind of blind you know, eye, yeah. Yeah, you do. And I think if you asked people over there whether they were, and in certain, and especially in certain districts, so if you went to certain people on the Shankill Road or the Lower Falls Road or in Belfast, which are which were during the Troubles strongholds for paramilitary groups because they're two opposing um, communities and they at the roads run parallel to each other so they're right on each other's doorsteps and when there's tension between the two communities which there often was it would it it would always sort of spark near that area a lot of the biggest sort of um events happened around that area or the um, most well-known paramilitaries that you know sort of acted I mean there was um I think her name was Maraid Farrell she went to Gibraltar which is an overseas British territory if anyone wants to go it's absolutely gorgeous um (laughs) they tried to explode a bomb um because back then um Gibraltar is a huge it's like because of where it is it's at the bottom of spain and it used to be a spanish territory it gives you access to the rest of sort of like africa because um i think it's algeria is only 20 miles off the coast of gibraltar so it's a main port Mm -hmm. you can't sort of ship in there but there's it's sort of a big hub of um activity and 
back in sort of the 70s and the 80s, there was a lot of British soldiers in Gibraltar because um, they have a big rock there and uh, it's basically a mountain and it's called the Rock of Gibraltar um, and it's got dozens and like miles, I think it's like three times the size of actual Gibraltar in in the rock there's three times the size of Gibraltar um amount of tunnels like length of tunnels and the military do training there sometimes and they often did back then so there was a lot of military personnel in Gibraltar back then so they their intention was because they used to have sort of like a changing of the guards like they do um at Buckingham Palace sometimes and they wanted to um, set off a bomb and because a lot of people used to go and watch it and they wanted to set off a bomb. Now, they were stopped prior and they were shot by the SAS. Mm-hmm. Um, there was three of them and one of them was Maraid Farrell. And I believe she lived in around that area in Belfast. There was also, um, unfortunately, and it is one of the most disgusting sagas of the whole conflict in my mind there was um a group they are called they were called the shank hill butchers i think there was about um there was yeah there was quite a few of them and um they are the most prolific um serial killers in british history but nobody knows about them because it's not necessarily counted because there's more than one killer it's a group of them right and because it happened during you know, um, a period of war. But they killed 13 people. Um, They were brutal and all of them were just innocent Catholic civilians. They were all loyalist paramilitaries. And back then, um, a lot of the um, bus services were run by... um, sort of unionist and um, loyalist Protestant companies or um, they drove them. And I think back then um, there was sort of um, a... uh, Sorry, my front door's going off. Um, (laughs) There there was a um, reluctance to use uh, the bus services by Catholics as sort of a... And um, especially amongst Republicans... um, sort of a stand to say no we're not we're not doing it until I think there was also a they wouldn't employ Catholic um bus drivers and things like that um, which was a huge issue back then um Catholics had less rights to houses to voting all sorts of things it was awful um so they used to use um uh black cabs now the butchers the group of butchers knew this so they drove around in black cabs snuck up on people that they knew were catholic and took them away um and awfully abused them and then killed them often um you know using a knife and um in and it and they purposely did that because um a lot of the time, especially, I think, I think it is within Catholicism that um, a lot of the time you have an open casket. They weren't able to do that because of the injuries that were inflicted on these victims. Their families weren't able to do that, or they were, and they had to have 
covers, you know, up to their nose um, to hide things. Um, And they purposely did that. And they they all operated around the Shankill area in Belfast. They they used to murder their victims and then just chuck them on the road along the Shankill area and drive away. And um, unfortunately, and quite outrageously, the leader of that um, gang was never prosecuted for the killings, even though it's very widely known that he was the orchestrator of all of it. It's awful, Uh, isn't it? It's injustice, it shouldn't happen, but because of when it was and what else was going on, it was kind of overlooked. Yeah, massively. It was one of the biggest and longest criminal trials in British history, and a few people know about it and the but incidents like that just inflame the situation especially in those areas of Belfast to the point where back then and even now they have what's called peace walls what peace they're creating I don't know they're like ridiculously high walls with barbed wire on to separate the communities from one another to try and create peace so that there's not clashes and, you know, the gates get locked at certain places um, to go a a certain way into those certain estates um, so that you don't have to go through the other person's area at a certain time of night. And to me, if you... And even after the troubles more peaceful were actually being built after the troubles than before so with all of that information i thought no it's not over and i want to write about this because there's a lot of wrongs here that need to be you know spoken about yeah they need yeah, a voice brought up and also there's a lot of victims there that really need to be given a voice because them and their families that had it taken away from them and that was one of my and I love that so I love standing up and it's a big passion for me is victim recognition um and I think that's why I love my job so much is because all of the um all of our work is not only to secure convictions but get justice for victims and also prevent other victims from ever occurring through that again yeah exactly and that and that's one of the things that I love most about my job is the ability to do that um and work towards that um you know we have safeguarding and um you know and we can signpost to um victim support but also on a personal level I know many officers that keep um like Clyde Driscoll, for example, he kept in touch with many of the victims of some of the most horrific um, offences that he investigated, um, just to check in how they were, um, because he cares. Like, and there are many officers like that, and I think that's one one of the biggest draws I had for policing because it's not all about grab someone, nick them, and put them in jail. That's not necessarily the aim. Um, always yes you want to do that um, but you also want to make sure that people are safe and you know I we all live in the same society and I want to make sure that my parents can walk down the road and not be frightened my friends everyone so 
yeah. you don't want them to sort of live the stories that you're probably investigating all the time. Um, yeah. So how come you decided to do a master's then after your undergraduate, if you caught, sort of knew what you wanted to do as a career? So there was a couple of reasons. I... I when I'd written my undergraduate degree at uh, my undergraduate dissertation I that's when I I think I properly fell in love with like academic writing because it was something it wasn't like any other assignment where you're given an option of you know some questions that you could do and you pick the one that you like the best this is completely constructed to what you want to write about yeah and I loved it and I thought, oh, I could do the academic side. So, and I thought I'd love to do one more year to be able to write another dissertation. Um, and BCU offered um, things that made that more possible for me. So the scholar, uh, scholarship scheme so yeah. um, and stuff like that. So it made it um, affordable. Um, and it just, it ticked all the boxes. And I thought, go for it because it's a second degree it's it's only a year and it's a second degree and it carries a lot of weight for jobs so for example um I work with someone in my department and they have worked um abroad and they've also worked um at a police force before mine but um they um haven't got a um master's degree and um I couldn't understand for the life of me why um they felt uh you know they because there's different levels in a in different departments so you as a research you have a researcher and then you have an analyst above them right a a researcher does most of the jobs that an analyst does you do do very much the same jobs but the level of um technical stuff is different so a researcher would not necessarily look at cool data as often whereas an analyst would and there's different level you have to show different levels of like past analytical skills yeah so um i mean don't get me wrong i think that um i i yes i am an analyst but um the researcher job to me is exactly the same um we do the same work and um they're as much of an asset as any other role um they're they're great and some of the best people that I work with are researchers and I realized that the reason I'd got straight into a job from university was because I had my master's degree um and I thought yeah but it's a degree it's not practical doing the job like experience and I spoke to my superior about it uh, my line manager and she said but it shows both of them show like past um, experience of being analytical because everything you write and every conversation you have and every debate you have is analytical within an academics sphere yeah so um, it really does help with getting the job. And also, I wanted to do it for me because I thought I've got a chance to do it straight away now. If I go and get a job and think about doing it later, the chances are I probably won't come back and do it. No, you'll put because it when, off. Yeah. yeah, and when, when you're starting to earn like 
earn full time from being a student you're not going to want to go back to being poor doing <laughs> yeah no it's, it's, it's true it's very true like and also you know I loved the university experience and I really wanted I felt like it wasn't finished until I'd done that plus also it's a it's something that no one can ever take away from you it's never going to expire it's never going to be old news or you know it's always going to be there it's something you've achieved yeah and And, sorry yeah and it's a year year more of you doing something you're interested in and sort of having the time to research that as well which by the sounds of it you're really like endowed in so and and also to be honest um because it's although it's full time you do one full day a week um depending how the timetable was but when I did it I was in Thursday seven till seven um which was an incredibly long day um luckily I had Fridays off work um but yeah and um I just thought it's an amazing opportunity and also you do when I did my master's we did two modules like two semesters and then the third semester because it goes september to september it's not september to sort of june time right um the last module which is pretty much from june to september the last semester is literally the only thing that you've got to do is write your dissertation that's you don't have um lectures or anything on it you you might have to go in for things like support about like they have workshops about writing introductions or referencing and stuff like that or meetings with your supervisor but because I did it during Covid because that's when I finished um I came home from uni in the March and never went back to Birmingham um because you know my degree had finished by the time we were allowed back unfortunately um and um it enables you because if you get it done early which I did it enabled me to look for jobs earlier because what I found a lot of my friends found is if you start applying slightly later everyone's going to start applying ready for sort of um July time when they're all finished uni they've sort of moved back home they sort of got the bit of the party out of them and they're ready to work yeah um and there a lot of places also recruit around that time because that they know that's when people have graduated. So I started looking for my role in December time. Yeah. And I got the offer in January and then it was just waiting for um my like funding and for um vetting checks and then I started in the September. The reason it took so long, which is very unusual was because of covid um because as as now um a lot of us are working from home um so the speed in getting people to do your checks and people getting back to you via email and stuff is it can be it was a bit sporadic at the time because obviously it was the first time we'd ever been in any sort of lockdown and there was a push from all um walks of life to work from home and they didn't always have the equipment to support that so laptops so it was very you know when are people working are their laptops working okay and sort of um 
things that to make it fit so you could do I mean now it's a lot better um we have all my systems I can do work from home but you know to start with it could be quite stressful because if something went down put a lot of pressure on um uh tech support so there was there was a lot of things that they struggled like they struggled with which took them time to do all the vetting um also you'll find when people work from home they work very strange hours (laughs) really strange honestly i've had emails at one in the morning um because people sometimes um especially when the kids were at home people have responsibilities when they weren't allowed to go to school so they help their significant other to look after the kids in the day and they'll work at the night and only attend the meetings and make sure they get deadlines still on time but their general working day wasn't the nine to five right um just and that's the way it worked with a lot of um and to be fair um my department is so flexible with that and but that was one of the things that made everything take so long but it was worth it because by the time I'd got um my uh job and I'd started within a week I'd got the results of the overall of my master's so that was all completed by the time I started so it was it was it was lovely and I think for me the master's gave me confidence yeah it wasn't just you know the enjoying it it gave me confidence that I actually had the ability to talk about you know it it gave you time to um specialize in what you're interested in but also really sort of get comfortable in yourself because I found that the masters yes you're you're a lot closer with the lecturers because um for some of them to be um, a lecturer at university a lot of the time you have to have had a lot of experience um in the industry or you have to be working towards your PhD academically that's usually what happens yeah and um so for some of them they are working on their PhD but they're only sort of one step ahead um slightly of where you are academically and you're taken a lot more seriously and you have a lot more input in what goes on um with the course and stuff like that and that sort of and I think it comes because it's an added responsibility you're doing a more difficult degree you're doing something that is a step up you need to be a little bit more professional um and it was treated like that for us and it really did get me ready for going to work the only thing that didn't was the fact that it was one day a week um yeah and going was... into five days a week was probably a bit yeah. like oh, <laughs> I don't yeah, have any of this with, time anymore yeah to start with tiring but um yeah it was it, it was to be honest um the masters really made my uni experience because I got to meet other people as well and got to I got closer with um other people on my course that I'd been friends with on my undergraduate um but we weren't as close and after doing the masters we sort of had a little group and you build you build different friendship groups as well which is lovely it's just it's good all around um and yeah I would I would suggest it to anyone that is interested because it was great 
Well, yeah, thank you for that. That was a really helpful insight into sort of university and the different stages of it. But I guess to finish, I would just let you briefly talk about your job and what sort of you briefly do, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. So generally, so I am, my title for work is um, an intelligence analyst. So basically there's two sides of that job. Um, You do sort of statistical work. So um, you look at maybe arrest rates or crime rates um, and you look to see and you might um, write it up. And likewise for... um, assessments that you have at uni you read things and you might have you form conclusions and then sometimes for reports you may um form recommendations which is similarly what you do for that um side of the job the other side of it is helping with investigations so it's very much like you see on tv not not as farcical sometimes um but there's things like um data analysis um you can do profiles um and just sort of um linking um cases together um and you sort of develop um so basically you would do so if an officer said i don't know i've got an interest in i think something's going on with this person i think they're doing this this and this you would do a bit of digging in records um and just have a look what's on the systems and see if you can find any additional information that would help their investigation. Um, both sides are really, really interesting. Um, and, yeah, it's the both, both sides are really good, um, but you get the same sort of fulfilment out of both because with the statistical side, you get that, that area of, oh, okay, well, if I say maybe we need to you know you make a suggestion that maybe we need to put more um resources in this area of this sort of crime or this area of where we live um then you might be able to see that in a couple of months weeks or even days um of that actually being beneficial in terms of the numbers that are coming in so um more people are being um, arrested and caught with weapons, for example, maybe, or you're finding more people that are vulnerable and then you can safeguard them and put um, things in place to make sure that they're safer. Um, And the other side, obviously, you're helping, um, like we said earlier, helping with an investigation that stops future victims, hopefully gets justice for the victims that are there and also... I found through uni um, that sometimes, and a lot of sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes there are people that commit offences that are in a very, very bad way in their life and they yeah. need a shock, uh, which for some some of them it can be going to prison to say, I don't want to do this anymore or, you know, it's... That it's a shock and they're frightened and they think, okay, right, I, I don't want to carry on like now, this. Yeah. And before it spirals too much out of control. And I think that's one of my one of the big things that um, I liked when I did um, my master's is we had the opportunity to go with the undergrads to Grendon Underwood Prison, which is therapeutic community. And BCU do a um, debate with um, the 
uh, residents because because it's a therapeutic community they're not referred to as um inmates it is residents because it's a community aspect um and i actually found it really insightful because the people the um residents that i spoke to said they were they weren't glad for what they did because people were harmed in the process because they because it's a cat b prison pretty much all of them are in there for very serious offenses so you know murder and things like that the people that i spoke to were in there for serious offenses like that and they said i'm not glad i it happened in terms you know because obviously somebody died it's not you know it doesn't ever make it worth it Mm. but and i and i really regret and they they were almost sort of like i hate myself for what i've done but i know i will never ever do it again ever and they said you know it's this has kind of taught me what i was doing was stupid and if i didn't hurt somebody else i would have hurt myself and the shock of them being caught and going to prison and having the sentence that they have and then getting the treatment from somewhere like Grendon has put them on a better path. And they've all said, all of them that I spoke to turned around and said, I just want a normal life when I get out. I just want to put all of this behind me because it's not worth it. I've ruined my life. I took somebody else's and ruined their family's life. But I also ruined my family's life as well because well, there's a there reputation, was, isn't there, it? Yeah. There, well, there's there's a bit of a, there's a stigma there, um, because you know of what their their brother or their son or whatever has done. Um, but also they've they they've lost twenty years with their family member. Yeah. They're not going to see them. You know so the 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 um two people that i spoke to because it's a male prison the two men that i spoke to were very young they were 19 and 20 when they were convicted so very young and they're not gonna their family have missed out on seeing things like their first serious serious girlfriend moving out for the first time having kids like they're not going to be able to do that until much much later in life and the chances are their parents won't be able to enjoy it as much because if they're older their health may have gone downhill yeah so they really have taken a lot away and i that sort of aspect because neither of them were at all angry with um because sometimes you do find that these these people that commit quite abhorrent crimes when you speak to them or they're interviewed they're very aggressive about um the police and things like that they these two weren't at all they both said look i did something awful and it's their job to find me and i've got to accept the consequences and the fact that they did has made me accept the consequences if they weren't there and i was never caught i probably would have gone on to hurt other people because my life was on a such a downhill spiral there was drugs involved with some of them and things like that and it's like they were just trapped yeah yeah and it's not it's in no way an excuse and none of them excuse the way they behaved and I, and I would never because you know the end of the day and the bottom line is somebody has died mm. um 
But I think if you can help that person, even if, yes, they're going to prison for, you know, 15 years, 20 years, whatever it may be, um, my hope would be if you got, if they got, if you managed to get help to get the conviction for that, after that time, they would come out a different person in a positive way. Yes. I'm, I'm not naive to say that, I'm not naive to think that a lot of them are like that because a lot of people don't and prison is a very hard environment however I my hope is that it would it would help people exactly and I guess unless you have anything else to add um that's it like that was really nice to speak to you and hear about your different experiences and it sounds like you got to do a lot of great opportunities with bcu and i'm sure you'll continue um some great work with the british transport police uh, and bring that work forward when you're um analyzing intelligence but yeah unless you have anything else to say i don't, don't want to cut you off but no, no, no. That's, that was great and thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it